Hoş geldiniz. Welcome to the Drawing Core podcast. We're outside today. Our recording studio is in a field, which it was once before. Hopefully you can hear the birds. There's a fucking load of birds. It's difficult for me to tell if I can hear them through the headphones or just all around me. But there's not much wind today as well, so we shouldn't get any wind noise. But if we if we just get a little bit, we're going we're gonna to stick with it. So um, if you if you're listening to this with earbuds, don't have it too loud. Protect them ears. How are your ears? How are you? I hope that you're well. Um, it's been another bit of a hiatus. A very erratic podcast, this one, especially recently. But I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Um, I feel like we have a dispersed community of podcast listeners. By all means, if you're frustrated that you're not getting enough Drawing Core podcast, were you to send a message to that effect, that would be very flattering and inspiring and motivating. But if we're all chilled, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll release a podcast when there's a good thing, like a good plan of what what's the crack, what we're going to talk about. And I've got a good one today. This is going to be interesting. This is super interesting. It's been interesting me for some time. Um, a, few, a couple of weeks it's been going on in my head and planned, pretty well planned. Pretty well planned today. Not scripted. Never scripted. But we know, we know what we know what we're going to talk about, which is uh, reassuring. I feel like I'm in my own safe hands. Hence, why I'm while we're doing a podcast today. I'm aware that there is the lingering promise of a podcast about our second psychedelic horror film in our Bad Trips Psychedelic Horror Film Club which is Toad Road. Evidently, that podcast has not yet been released. It will be. It will be. It, it, we, we, I, I watched again uh, Toad Road a couple of days ago, so um, I'm, I'm ready to make that podcast now. If you haven't watched it yet, you can check it out. It's um, about a bunch of kids who take a lot of drugs, and someone new, Sarah, joins to their group and gets very into psychedelic experience and especially into an urban myth of somewhere called Toad Road, which is apparently the road on which there are seven gates that leads to hell. It's, um, you know, watching it again, it's, it's not, um, it's not a groundbreakingly good horror film. It's more interesting in terms of having a psychedelic horror film club and it's particularly interesting as a pairing with our first horror film, Altered States. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about gender, the gender, gendering of the characters and the identity of the characters and their, their similar but, very diff- but also different um, attitudes to wanting to push the experience of consciousness further and the films both tell their kind of dangers of that in through their through their horror anyway that's coming 
Um, this podcast is going to be about queering hyperviolent video games. So it's not a podcast for people who are really into video games, particularly. Although, that would be very cool to come at it from that angle, because there's not so much queer video game critic out there, I believe. Not a huge amount. So we're, we're chipping in with this podcast to that small pool of resources. And it's specifically talking about the masculinity of hyperviolence, the toxic masculinity of hyperviolence. So I think we should start with this, this term toxic masculinity because it can be quite triggering for people who don't quite understand what it means. And a lot of people don't always use it in a very careful way, so it's not surprising that we don't have a very clear idea sometimes of, oh, what the fuck it means. But there's a very good video by someone called the Pop Culture Detective about toxic masculinity. And so I'm gonna um, base my explanation of it entirely on his video. Uh, I suggest you check it out if you wanna know more or you want to hear it explained in a slightly um, richer way. I'm going to include the link to his video and also pretty much all of the articles that I've consulted, even if I've just glanced over them, I'm going to include that jazz on the Hear This page, which is where the podcasts are um, hosted. So you should be able to see that if you if you go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. But if you can't see it because you're looking on Facebook or Instagram, then check out hearthis.at/drawingcore, and you can check any more any further reading. So toxic masculinity. Masculinity is the behaviours traditionally and culturally associated with men and manhood. And toxic masculinity is a negative subset of those behaviours. So it's often used to talk about behaviours generally linked to domination, humiliation and control. Uh, also emotional detachment and hyper-competitiveness. And aggression, intimidation and violence. So like, it's toxic because that implies that you know these behaviours have negative consequences. So the reason these things are toxic, toxic. So you could reframe aggression as a positive behavior because you are um, standing up for something or defending something. But in the case of toxic masculinity, we're talking about aggression, which is negative. Negative is necessarily negative. Generally, toxic masculinity is relational. So it, it often it talks about how men relate to women, for example how people relate to others or how people are have a negative or a positive tr character trait so there's a kind of binary gender often in conversations about this you're either man or you're woman you're either masculine or you're feminine which um, we're gonna kind of undermine a little bit in any way throughout this podcast so um, hopefully oh, that's gonna be interesting 
but um, the, the reason the reason that um, it's interesting that um, toxic masculinity is often relational in regard to binary gender is because it can also be understood in terms of a fear of emasculation so toxic masculinity these traits the reason that they are traditionally culturally associated with men and manhood is because there's an expectation on men to be masculine and to not exhibit masculine characteristics behaviors whether positive or negative would be to be emasculated and to be therefore a woman and kind of fail your job of being a man but I think I'm not going to really try and spend much time undermining that this is silly this is silly is silly it's it's silly toxic masculinity is not inherent or biological it's not something men are but something some men sometimes do and to add to that something some women sometimes do something some people sometimes do the reason it's masculinity is because it's traditionally associated with men and manhood but that's just that's just um, circumstantial really because of our history in other cultures perhaps different behaviors are considered masculine and this whole thing would be different but we're not gonna go we're not gonna this podcast isn't about gender um, that's just our, that's just kind of we need to lay that groundwork of what toxic masculinity is because I want to say to you here now people on this podcast we can see masculinity in video games like uh, games are about control exerting your control over and inside of a system and over uh, uh, an avatar player that you can tr- you play as that avatar um, or, in- or you're exerting your control over others because games are also competitive they're therefore about domination about winning over others often and the most common mechanic across most major video game releases is violence. The mechanic by which you affect the world and the world affects you is kind of kill or be killed. It's, it dominates in mainstream video game releases. Not to say there aren't other types of video games. There is a lot of independent video games which, that I mean that scene is, is bigger than it's ever been and it's always it's growing so these, this commentary about video games is really related to mainstream releases, major releases, but that's the way industry works, those things dominate, so let's fucking criticise them, let's be part of that alternative video game audience. So these things, um, like I said, we, they might not necessarily be toxic unless they have negative consequences. So games can be about control and competition and domination and even violence, perhaps, without being negative. But to to try and suggest what might be the negative consequence of masculinity in video games and how it might be toxic masculinity is basically through representation and simulation. So how we understand the world and how we interact with it. If we understand the world through kill or be killed, and we interact with it through domination, 
you know, a piece of art, a video game is always necessarily saying something about the world because it's made in the fucking world. Like, it, it can't be outside of society. Outside of your society when you play it, you contextualize it just by existing in the world and then playing the game. So there's definitely a feedback that the game gives to you about the world. And if you understand and you interact with the world of the game only through violence, domination, competition, control, this is encouraging those traits and behaviours in the real world. Not literally. I'm not saying it's literally going to make people violent, controlling, competitive, dominating. But that's just the suggestion of how we should be in the world, which is enough to be perpetuating those ideas of um, of positive masculine behaviours and you know the fear and failing at games would be a kind of emasculation and we can mainly see this through the huge 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 sexism and particularly misogynism misogyny misogynism misogyny in uh, the video game industry video game press video game community um, so if you if you don't need, you, you possibly don't need any evidence of that because it's very, very, very obvious, I think. But games are often marketed at boys, it's often assumed that the main audience of games is boys and men, even if, uh, even if that's not true. Most of the um, protagonists, the avatars that you can play as in video games are male and are men and it is considered normal to play video games as a man but considered something odd or different to play as a woman even if the statistics might in fact show that it's not that uncommon for women to play video games something called gamergate and if you want to if you want if you crave that proof of misogyny in video games go and check out what gamergate is because Gamergate is a harassment campaign targeting several women in the video game industry. It was a few years ago and some of the harassment is scary and is very violent. Even in threats, empty threats they may be, but there's certainly lots of women in the industry who have been targeted with violent threats due to the fact that they're women. Or the threats themselves are gendered, so they're a kind of woman-hating threat, particularly. So, I'm not saying that the masculinity in, vi in video games is toxic because we're going to have people going out and killing innocent bystanders like one may do in uh, Grand Theft Auto. But I am saying that the toxic masculinity in video games is there and we can see it because of how gendered interactions go down within the video games community. But I want to particularly focus on the violence, specifically hyper-violence. And um, I'm going to explain a video game now which I think is a perfect example of hyper-violence. So, <clears throat> um, and I, I, I use the term hyper-violence myself, I, I don't use it because it means something specific. So if you're thinking hyper-violence is something, uh, why is it different from violence? Then you're asking the wrong person. I just think it's 
sounds good. Um, and the reason I'm interested in this is because I played this game not too long ago. The game is God of War. And if you know God of War, I'm talking about God of War 1, 2, 3, and uh, the 2 or 3 extra other, other games in the main series, not the new one. I have not played the new one, and the way it works is a little different. Perhaps everything the same applies, but it's such a different beast that I'm not gonna, not really referring to that one. I'm referring to the earlier God of War games, which were on the PlayStation 2, so what this is, we're talking like 10 years ago, 15, no, but 10 years ago, roughly. Very prominent, popular, successful, well made, to use a very vague descriptor, video games, um, in which you play as a Spartan warrior. So if you've seen the film 300, you'll know that Spartan warriors are famed for their fighting prowess. And just like in 300, the violence is the key to the characterization of the Spartan warrior. God of War, you play as a Spartan warrior called Kratos, who um, becomes a demigod at some point in the story. His background is that um, he, he's trying to take revenge on the gods for killing his brother. So he has this huge campaign of expansionist violence as this kind of empire with, with where he kind of um, raids villages and um, destroys other uh, militias, etc. And he makes a pact with Ares, the god of war, to defeat his enemies. So Ares um, grants him the victory over one particular army and Kratos continues his fucking reign of violent terror expanding. This is all pretty much before you're playing. This is the backstory of the video game. Um, and uh, on one raid of a village, Kratos is warned not to enter a temple, but he does anyway. And he accidentally kills his wife and daughter because they've been transported there by Ares. Um, and he's just waded in and sliced everyone up. So he's killed his wife and daughter accidentally. Um, and uh, this is more or less where you start the game. He's, 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 it's still all about revenge. He's now fucked off at Ares because Ares made him do this or tricked him into doing this. So he goes off on one and you control him as you steam your way through ancient Greek myth and kill all kinds of crazy things. And Kratos' white skin is uh, the ashes of his family and his blades of chaos, which is your basic weapon in the game, are chains fused to his arm as a kind of punishment. And uh, at the end of the long chains, there are these blades like scythes that he swings around. So you play third person, so the camera is set back from the action, and you control this Kratos jumping around the screen, killing everything around him, hacking and slashing. That's the kind of subgenre of this action adventure video game, hack and slash. A little bit of a break there in the audio recording, sorry about that basically it stopped recording so I have I just realized after about 15 minutes of talking that I, w I wasn't actually uh, speaking to anybody so <clears throat> I've had to go back to where I was and I'm gonna pick it up now sorry about that we're talking about God of War as a hack-and-slash video game 
hack and slash games are acrobatic, they're stylish, they're easy to pick up and play but difficult to master. And uh, your acrobatic avatar jumps around the screen with their weapons, killing lots of things. Often you have different combinations of moves that you can use to get more points. So this is how you the difficulty um, encourages you to master the systems but they're easy to pick up because you can just kind of mash buttons and do lots of uh, slicing or shooting or and kill lots of things um, so th they're quite popular they're quite prominent genre of video games the most maybe the defining video game is Devil May Cry and God of War is very similar in its <coughs> basic mechanic to Devil May Cry and I I want to say that these games I think are the, kind of the epitome of power fantasy in video games so we talked about power fantasy in our earlier podcast about video games how a lot of mainstream major video game releases are you the player entertaining this power fantasy of this very very strong very very lethal almost always male character who is a kind of one-man army and manages to destroy all of the enemy through their super-powered action. Um, and this, 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 is, this is very um, hyper-masculine because video games are so much associated with masculinity and the characters you play are often masculine. If you look at Kratos, he is a chiseled, muscled, macho man um, exhibiting all of the characteristics and behaviours of masculinity that are traditionally expected, including the toxic characteristics, including emo emotional detachment and also including um, heterosexuality. So this relational attitude to women, you can, there are um, points in at least the first game where you can um, fuck some women who you meet and it is you, the male character, fucking the women rather than anything else. Um, because, I mean, it, it would be necessarily if you have agency over that male character, you are then doing the sex onto the woman. So, they're hyper-masculine and also hyper-violent. And in playing God of War, I a little while ago now, I was playing God of War and I kind of really enjoyed it. Like, I really enjoyed the systems and it was the challenge, but the accessibility and the flourish and the, the way everything is balanced so it plays very satisfyingly um, and you, are, you get this sort of feedback in hack and slash games for your, for your violence like even in God of War you can kind of if you weaken an enemy you can trigger a, a finishing move where you'll do something like rip out the eye of a cyclops or something so your violent action, your success is rewarded in, your, your, the success of your violence is rewarded by even more violence um, but it can also be rewarded through points, through visual stimulus, just like shiny things as you slash and um, uh, feedback from like even the controller vibrates or something. So you have, a, you have a visceral experience of what you're doing, which is in God of War very well balanced for me. So I enjoyed that. But I also, I didn't enjoy the hyper masculinity, the hyper violence in, in theory. In my head I was like, well, I'm, I don't consider myself a, that kind of person. I, why? It seems problematic to me. 
So I wondered if you can queer God of War. Um, I'm not sure we talked about this before, but when you use queer as a verb, as in queering something, often we mean doing a queer reading of a text. So this is, in fact, reading queerness into a text, not necessarily looking for the hidden queerness, but looking at a text and kind of wanting it and actively um, re-describing it or recontextualizing it as something queer. So there's an obvious way that we can do this with God of War and these these kind of power fantasy video games through um, I th I'm not sure on the terminology, but I think we can. I think it might be auto mediation, or perhaps we could change that to auto identification. By which I mean, when you play as Kratos, you kind of the game automatically works by I, you by you identifying with that character. So if you are a not Kratos type individual, of which I don't know if there are such people in the world really, um, but even if you don't want to be, if you have no desire to be, there's no part of you which is wanting to or or able to uh, to embody that hyper-masculine or hyper-violent character, you can still play as him and you can suspend your self while you indulge in a fantasy of somebody else and to do that implies that gender is kind of unstable because you have your reality in the real world and then your temporary reality of your embodying Kratos. Therefore gender is a doing, not a being. I can be many different genders including I can be a a different one in video games to what one I, the one I am in real life. And digital gaming can be, um, I, I read, has been described as a place to indulge in boyhood. And because of the associations with masculinity and video, uh, associations between masculinity and video games that we talked about uh, a minute ago, it's it's usually a male thing. And I think boyhood refers to also the slight immaturity of a lot of these simulations. A lot of the people you play as there's a kind of immature boyness to their masculinity um, and you get to live out that power fantasy even if it's even if it is indulgent you are indulging in it from whatever position you actually take in the real world. You can play at being a boy or play at being a hyper masculine violent god for half an hour for an hour and I want to link this queering we're trying to do to camp art so we're going back to Susan Sontag who we talked about before on the podcast but we talked about her um, musings on style and content she also has an essay called notes on camp so camp culture and we can describe people as camp or art as camp and we're talking about art as camp here it was a fascination that people had uh, this genre of art particularly around her time in the 60s and 70s and it resisted definition it was a little bit uh, it was a kind of cultish thing that was outside of the high art and didn't really conform to any traditional artistic genres or artistic um, makeups. So she has notes on camp, little notes that are 
giving an idea of what it is, but she maintains this tension between it being something she can describe and something that she cannot. But, but what we see in her notes on camp is that camp art is basically uh, interested in the aesthetic and in the artifice, in the surface. Um, it's sincere in its interest, but crucially, it's not, or it's not entirely successful. So she talks about intentional versus pure camp. So intentional camp, something that is in, intending to be camp from its creation, can be entirely successful at being camp, but it's somehow less camp, it's somehow not pure camp because of that. Pure camp, she talks about, is something that is sincerely interested in that aesthetic, but not to the point of doing something profound and deep with it. It sort of sticks in that aesthetic level, so it's not entirely successful in its sincerity, but it becomes camp in that way. So camp art is saying something but not. She talks about Art Nouveau, which is like highly decorative art and architecture around 1900. And that is all, like, yeah, it's just very highly decorative, so it's all, all aesthetic and artifice, and a lot of love and care is taken over you know, small details of presentation. So it seems to be a non-serious aesthetic priority, which blocks out the idea there's actually any content. But in fact, of course, there is still content. There is content in all art. Like, to be apolitical is still a political stance. So you get this the tension between being serious and not serious. It's a kind of detachment. And the failure to be successful in sincerity creates this thing where she talks about enjoying camp as having a good taste in bad taste. So camp art is all kind of art that is sort of not, is a bit crap, but having a good taste, enjoying camp is de determining the interesting aspects of the serious, non-serious play that is going on. So I think this is very relevant to trying to queer something because we, she talks about um, behind the straight public sense in which something can be taken, one can find a private zany experience of the thing. So we're kind of reading in that zany or queer experience which is at odds with the straight, sincere public sense. But we're determining with our good taste that something is camp and therefore saying something interesting about its own tension between the non-serious and the serious, between the sincere and the unsuccessful, between the aesthetic and the content. And it can be a private experience because it's, it's you reading it in. It doesn't have to be the intention of the piece. It's just when that piece of art is out in the world, we can kind of recontextualize it, re-describe it <clears throat> in a queer way, in a zany way. And if we go back again specifically to gender, she says that for camp taste, the most refined form of sexual attraction consists in going against the grain of one's sex. So having a kind of unsuccessful masculinity, which is an undermined by more feminine behaviours or by, um, by failures to be masculine. So I think this is very relevant to our, you know, our tension in playing a very hyper-masculine Kratos character while also being 
the opposite of that or being something very different from that. We're kind of going against the grain of this sincere masculinity. And there's something refined about that in terms of camp. We have a good taste in bad taste if we can queer God of War, something, something like this. I want to I want to move the discussion a little bit to talk about a different video game to keep going with this. So Metal Gear Solid um, is a series of video games very popular, very critically appraised, very important in terms of video game history, in terms of um, video game industry. And Metal Gear Solid has a very serious and complex um, narrative and also mechanics, and it's all about um, military. So, Metal Gear Solid games are mainly concerned with espionage operations, secret services, stealth um, units of military forces. A lot of it takes place around and related to the Cold War. <clears throat> that was the flapping of a chicken there, if you heard that. It seems to have, she seems to have come to listen to podcast. Welcome, chicken. <clears throat> the fourth game in the series is um, concerned with non-linear warfare and how in the future warfare is going to be carried out by um, private military companies and the uh, war economy is going to just absorb the whole of global politics and is going to kind of continue of its own accord um, just because it's <clears throat> just because the system works by um, having an economy based on conflict so conflict will continue in this non-linear way not not enemies coming up but more just like we're continuing to fight because that's how the world works and the fifth game in the series, the one that I'm playing currently, which is giving me a lot of reason to go over these things, um, in the fifth game, you actually build your own private army. That's a part of the, a rather big part of the mechanics of the game. You, you are uh, recruiting people and managing your private army. And there's something in me which, when you open your menu screen and you see the option to micromanage your private army on the one hand I think that's a bit dark I don't really I'm not a very militaristic person I'm pacifist probably if we use word I also laugh at it I also think it's so silly and ridiculous to just open a menu and micromanage a private army and I feel like there's something in the content of the game that is supporting that reading that it's silly it has this silly attitude towards military even though it's so serious and complex there are little jokes peppered throughout there are funny parts of the series generally that crop up again and again but in a large part it's very straight-faced so it's very sincere but I just don't think it's entirely successful so I think it's a very good camp it can be a very good camp piece of art if we kind of queer it and I want to just read a little bit of, read a sentence from, um, a couple of sentences from the notes on camp. 
said the whole point of camp is to dethrone the serious. Camp is playful, anti-serious. More precisely, camp involves a new, more complex relation to the serious. One can be serious about the frivolous and frivolous about the serious. So like we talked about this tension between saying something and not, being sincere but unsuccessful, being serious but not serious. I think we can, if we want to read that non-seriousness into Metal Gear Solid, we serve to create a kind of queer reading of it. Because it is male and it is violent. And I think, you know, this toxic masculinity of video games, there's, a, there's an aspect of this which is like, if you give men toys and you say you're a man so you have these sort of toys and those kind of toys are linked to behaviours of masculinity that are sometimes toxic, you're arresting masculine development and keeping it there with those, with those kind of toys rather than letting men define their own masculinity by having real-world interactions. That's a bigger topic that I could talk about for longer. But with Metal Gear Solid, it's, like I said, it's an espionage game. You are, have a lot of tools of how to approach a situation, especially in this recent fifth game. You're encouraged to have, uh, you're encouraged to approach different missions in different ways. You have all these different tools at your disposal. Like you can manage this army in the way that you want. You have a, 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 a certain amount of freedom in how you navigate that space. But <clears throat> that kind of obsession with toys is also, in a way, I think, boyhood-ish. And the misogyny in Metal Gear Solid is very hard to ignore. So that I did find an article about um, how the female characters and women characters are actually kind of empowering gender identities in the series. But to just look at the fourth game, you um, one of the one of the central antagonists is the Beauty and the Beast unit. Beauty and the Beast unit is, uh, I think, four different um, cyborg warriors, cyborg soldiers, who uh, you have to defeat one by one as you progress through the game. And all of them are highly sexualized women who are defeminized and like they're they're kind of taken out of their feminine bodies and put into these big robots and they are you know they are almost they are quite prime antagonists in the sense that they're very powerful they're very hard to defeat they are the bosses in the game but they also all have this awful excruciating backstory and when you defeat one and the cyborg part of them is is broken and comes off then you have a skin tight costumed woman who's very very sexualized by camera angles by you know conforming to like the um, high body standards of body shape you have to then kill that person you shoot them they are now unarmed and it's this is an easy part of the boss battle where you just unload your gun into this unarmed sexy woman until they die and then you learn about how horrific their backstory is how they were um, 
stolen and forced to be a child soldier, how they were imprisoned and had to escape and how they went through all of this trauma. So somehow this Beauty and the Beast unit of Metal Gear Solid 4 sexualizes women, hypersexualizes women and objectifies them. Also turns them into victims and also makes them the threat, the violence of women. In terms of a feminist reading, there are so many problems with Metal Gear Solid. And like I said, toxic masculinity is relational. So it's not just about the men, it's also about the other genders that they interact with, that set up the gender politics of the series. So this is, this is a little bit introduction to Metal Gear Solid and the problems with it, but the potential of reading it queerly. We'll talk a little bit about the specific militarism of it because this is not hyperviolence in the sense of God of War where you are spraying blood around. This is hyperviolence in the sense of you are a, the violent machine of the military or you are part of it. And often military is associated with masculinity, aggression, intimidation, domination, violence. These are the functions of a military. You could argue that defense is, but the you know military forces are also antagonistic forces as well as passive forces that defend and we can we know we know the masculinity associated with militarism in world war 1 pacifists were given by women feathers petticoats and other soft items indicative of femininity implying that because they were not man enough to conform to masculine gender norms as in going to fight they should wear feminine clothing instead. Gender, as defined by Judith Butler, is a performance with clearly punitive consequences. Judith Butler's work on gender is all about the fact that gender is a doing and not a being. You perform gender and you perform it differently at different times and you can create gender trouble by doing it in unexpected ways, non-normative ways ways that challenge the dominated dominant um, discourses and it's punitive in the sense of emasculation you know like if you don't play the game right if you're not man enough then you will be punished by being your masculinity taken away from you on the other hand pacifist game playing isn't always ridiculed um, there are YouTube let's play videos of people trying to play games which usually uh, use violence as a mechanic during the game, as a central mechanic, but playing them in a pacifist way, like going through the game without killing anyone. But there's a couple of qualifiers to this pacifist game playing. One is that it's often done in a sense of um, competing against the game's systems to kind of prove that you can do it um, in this non-unintended way. It's not really about challenging the violence, that's not the intention behind it. So there's a key difference between thinking it's um, challenging this toxic masculinity, where in fact it's still actually hyper-competitiveness, it's just a different form, this um, happens to be not killing. And, and I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by that, I still think it's very interesting but um, that's one, one sort of qualifier. So, more specifically, something called theory crafting, where you kind of try and play the game the way it isn't meant to be played. 
um, which is yeah like saying that like that's what people are trying to do but I think theory crafting is actually a very queer exercise and I'm, I hope to do another video game podcast about theory crafting and like how um, fucking with the systems of a game and trying to work outside them or turn them around or exploit them is also is, is an act is a political act that defies what is ex- is about defying what is expected or what is given to you as possible the other qualifier about pacifist gaming is to talk about um, games that are actually critical themselves of violence in video games this is often hard to achieve because of there being a, there being a hypocrisy about it because games that are about violence even if they criticize violence often use violence as their central mechanic so there's a new Call of Duty game which came out not that long ago, a year ago or something. And the story, the narrative story of that campaign is all about the horrors of war. But at the end of the day, every level, you're just shooting more bullets at more people. So it kind of doesn't, the, the criticism of violence doesn't land because at the end of the day, you're, the whole way of interacting with the game is enjoying the violence the opportunity it gives you to be violent. There's a game that is definitely worth mentioning called Spec Ops The Line. Now, this is a war game, it's third person shooter. It's not dissimilar to many other mainstream games in the sense that the sense of how it plays and the sense of it being very militaristic and again a kind of um, power fantasy. You play as a man who shoots people. But in this game, you commit atrocities accidentally. So you realize after the fact that you've been shooting at um, other Americans, or you've been, um, you've bombed somewhere, you, 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 um, you bombed, you, uh, you drop these white phosphorus bombs somewhere on what you think are soldiers, turns out to be civilians. So the whole game is criticizing player choice because uh, the characters, the character defends his actions after he realizes saying I had no choice and you as the player in fact you don't have any choice about how to play the game the secret ending as one of the game developers said is to turn it off is to just stop playing it so rather than it being a game that is really encouraging you to be violent and then saying oh yeah but violence is bad but enjoy this violence spec ops the line succeeds in its critic as much as it is an attack not only on violent video games but also on you as a player for choosing to play this game because the mechanics are simple that they're not it's not a very innovative game in terms of its mechanics so you're complicit in the atrocious consequences of the game's violence because in the end of the day you just wanted to pick up a game and shoot things And this game also criticizes the, um, the discrete mechanic of moral choice. So like, as in, there's a, there can be a specific mechanic within a game, which is a moral choice. So you get to a point in the game and you choose whether to do this or this. Um, and they're called, sometimes called karma systems. Because you can build your character <clears throat> through these mechanics to be uh, good or bad and perceived by other non-playable characters as good or bad. And then the game changes based on that. But these are kind of notoriously tacked-on mechanics. And um, the critic from Spec Ops The Line is that, you know, such a mechanic 
uh, on the one hand, reduces all other actions to amoral, which again is the same hip hypocrisy, you know. You do this moral choice, but at the end of the day, you're still running around shooting things, so kind of undermines whatever interesting thing the moral choice is bringing up. On the other hand, they can be very tokenistic, like I said, tacked on. So there should always be a question maybe of how it's embedded in the story in the universe. What does it actually mean to make a moral choice in this game? And often it doesn't mean that much. It's just to give a sense of more immersion. But there are certain games, um, one called Undertale, where the story, the whole game literally changes based on what you do, how you act and how you position yourself morally, ethically towards the systems of the game. You will see a completely different game if you play it one way and a completely different game if you play it another. But most of the time, that's not how discrete mechanics of moral choice work in games. So this is, this is the, the most successful critic, the most successful pacifist critic of video game violence within violent video games is Spec Ops The Line. <clears throat> but then I'll take it back um, in a last in the last in, in our last bit of the podcast we take it back to Metal Gear Solid Metal Gear Solid encourages you to play in a non-lethal way not pacifist but stealth espionage is the highest um, the thing in the game that is positioned to be the, the most successful player you can be is if you if you go into situations and you achieve your missions without killing anyone and without even alerting people to your presence so along with you know along with it offering you an alternative way of reading it or an alternative way of embodying gender by you know playing as a different gender it also actually within the game system has a way of in of offering you an alternative to the violence i'm not saying this entirely solves the problem at all i'm more saying that it's interesting and i found an article about stealth as politics and it was about an activist philosophy of becoming imperceptible talking about how we've moved in our activist cultures from identity politics to very security conscious politics where we're wary of being spied on because this is how the, the, the state systems, the, the authority works at the moment is through technology that spies on us. So being stealthy, being imperceptible is now an activist strategy. And the article talks about stealth in video games and says how the impression of not being perceived, you know, achieving your missions without alerting anybody, slowly intensifies into a feeling of not being that approaches an experience of desubjectification. The important thing to take away from that in the context of this podcast is like, by playing games which engage with stealth, you further you, you make uh, identity further unstable. You desubjectify, so the, the connection between you and the avatar is even more kind of blurry, 
because you are kind of trying to make your avatar invisible. And it's all about perceiving the environment around and acting within the systems. And we talked a little bit on the last video game podcast. Dynamic systems that interact with each other independently of the player are interesting and increasingly popular. For example, there'd be wildlife in the world, also weather, um, also time. So like, to, as the time in the game changes and the weather changes and the animals do different things, they interact with each other even if you're not doing anything as the player. These are increasingly popular and, and very interesting. And how you use your agency within that system of systems is what's called emergent gameplay. So new scenarios emerge because of how all these systems and you, the player, uh, interact together. So this can be exploiting the systems to play the games as it, as it was not intended to be played, as in this theory crafting, as in these pacifist let's plays. But also as games offer more and more complex webs of systems, they're inviting you to express yourself in more and more ways. This is all queering Metal Gear Solid and God of War. Queering God of War in the sense of decontextualizing it, making it into camp culture. Doing a similar thing with Metal Gear Solid, but also engaging with the mechanics in such a way to express yourself and to be aware in a kind of critical way of the relationship between your identity in the real world and your temporary embodied identity in the game world. So by queering these things, we are, we are kind of opening up the possibility for them to be more interesting and more political. And the reason this podcast is subtitled Making Hypermasculinity Gay Again is, is just to use the idea of toxic masculinity in this camp way <clears throat> to undermine its power as the dominant force and to, by, by using it, by not fighting with it, but mocking it in an intelligent way by being active inside it while blurring the lines between your real identity and your, your identity you're using when you engage with it. This, that's, that's the podcast. That was, that was kind of, that was, that was a big one. I don't know how more to end it than that. It feels, feels like a bit of a sharp end there. Um, I should have had more of a nice tying up statement to make or something, but I, I, I don't really. So we're going to just leave that. And we're going to play a song, which has nothing to do with this hyper-masculinity, hyper-violence, but it's a nice song. And um, our resident DJ, i.e. me, um, is um, going to be playing a set every week on Roots Radio Live, and <clears throat> uh, the first one was on was a couple of days ago, and it will be online soon, and it will be shared through the Drawing Core Podcast Instagram page, and uh, then I will share as we go when the next sets are going to be. This song, Badness by Fig Cake. We heard from Fig Cake in a previous episode um, for his political break call. This song is the first song of the first mix of Tilky Tech on Roots Radio Live. So if you like it and you want to hear more, 
Um, keep an eye out for when we post the um, post the mix in full online. Um, and if you want to check the, where that will actually be posted, is on here. This dot at slash tilkytech. Take care of yourselves. Take care of other people. Be compassionate to yourselves. Be compassionate to other people. Take it easy. Opiorum sizi. Seviorum sizi. I'll see you soon for probably a podcast about Toad Road. In the meantime, Hadi bye bye.